Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. Well, for this week, we have a little bit of a shorter episode than usual, but the stories in it will definitely make up for it. I hope you're ready for it. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a cop and I just arrested my best friend. Written by Barkles52 I've been a cop for almost three years now. Every day, my alarm chimes at exactly 10 o'clock. I head to the gym, shower, prep my meals for the day, and head to the station to work the evening shift. If it's the weekend, I may hit the bars after work with my shift, but otherwise, this job is my life, for better or worse. They warned us in the academy that the job can change you, and that you'll lose most of your family and friends. Sometimes the loss is from a difference in political views. Sometimes it's from a lack of free time, and sometimes from our short-tempered bursts due to extreme burnout. But whatever the reason may be, those people aren't easily replaced. The job consumes your entire being and prevents you from meeting new people, who aren't other cops. I wanted you know it didn't even take three years before my instructor's words rang true. Well, besides for Ethan. Ethan and I have been friends since first grade, and even my odd sleep schedule, extreme exhaustion, and lack of ability to schedule just about any plans. He never wavered. I was a quiet kid, but Ethan wasn't. He always saved me a seat on the bus, and even though I didn't know the kid, I was always excited to have somebody to sit with. As time went on, he made more of an effort and I opened up for my shell. One day in high school, during lunch, I remember asking him why he always saved me a seat, expecting him to tell me he wanted to be friends or he liked my lunchbox or some other stuff. Ethan lifted a sandwich from the iconic red tray and took a bite of it before telling me, and the kid that stopped after you smelled like straight fish sticks and... I needed to make sure that he didn't sit with me. That's Ethan for ya. He wasn't popular by any means, but he never lacked a confidence or integrity. He quickly became my most trusted person. At least he was. And we've talked every single day for the past 10 years. If it isn't texting, we're constantly sending each other snapchats or links to videos. He's like a brother to me. Heck, he just asked me two weeks ago to be the best man at his wedding. I was stoked about it and not just because I wanted to plan a trip to Vegas or Nashville, but because I really liked his fiancée. I've known her since college and she's just the chillest girl ever. They had recently bought a house together, a small cottage-style yellow house that I grew up calling the Matilda House. There were always rows of brightly colored flowers and a small white picket fence that was just high enough to still allow you to see the flowers in the front stoop. I was actually excited when I bought it so that I could finally see the inside to compare if it was anything like I had ingrained it in my head like the movie. But now I pray that I never have to step foot in that house again. It was around 10pm, nearing the end of my shift. 
it had been an eerily quiet night. I was just finishing my last sip of gas station coffee when the call went out, and the disruption to the silence was such a startle that I spit some of my coffee out and it dribbled down to my radio mic. As I went to reach for a napkin, deja vu had struck me. Maybe I'm just messy and use a lot of napkins, but it was so strong I even knew the dispatcher was about to send me priority. So much so that before she had finished calling on my badge, my finger was on the switch. And dispatch to A22, she called out. A22, go ahead. I responded, fingers still hovering. Head to 344 Redacted Lane for a 911 hang-up. Dispatch heard loud screaming prior to the hang-up. Priority authorized. It's not often we get priority authorized in this small town, so I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little pumped to flick on my lights and hear the siren flood the empty streets as I made my way toward the call. It took me about four seconds before the shock of adrenaline waned enough to recognize the address. It was Ethan's house. I arrived on scene and the front door was slightly ajar. In any other house, my hand would have been on my gun, if not pulled out and down to my side. But this was my best friend, family. Within an instant, all police protocol leaped from my brain and was replaced with concern. I pushed open the door and yelled, Ethan, Lauren. No response. I turned the corner and looked up the stairs. Blood was smeared all over the walls, wrapping around the furthermost side and into the kitchen. There was a pool of it lying on the kitchen floor. The top of my boot splashed in it before I could stumble backward. Jesus Christ, I muttered. I followed the red trail up the stairs to their bedroom. There is no way that somebody lost this much blood and was still alive. As soon as the thought had escaped my mind, I drew my weapon. I forced the bedroom door open with my boot, leaving a small new stamp of blood on the crisp white door that was already splattered with droplets. Ethan was curled up in the corner of the room, grasping onto a knife. He was wide-eyed and jaw-clattering. He was unrecognizable. Ethan, what the... As I went to offer him help... My police senses caught up with my civilian emotions. He was covered in blood, and not just him, but the knife too. A22, do you copy? I physically shook my head to try to get my crap together. I held my gun in one hand and lowered. A22 negative, what? I asked dispatch. A22, 934 is entering the premise. Where do you want him? My sergeant was on the scene. Upstairs, first door on the left. One. I hesitated. Do I call him a suspect, a victim? One individual with a knife. Stand down. I release my mic and look at Ethan. Ethan, man, you gotta drop the knife. He took a deep breath and held it. I repeated. Drop the knife. He released the knife in his lungs simultaneously and let out a sob that still shakes me to even think about. As I grabbed the knife, my sergeant approached behind me and then I realized it asked, Ethan, 
Where's Lauren? The rest is a blur in my mind. As soon as the sergeant arrived, I forced my mind and my body to enter cop mode as I call it. Similar to autopilot, it's a nearly robotic function we use to hinder our personal emotions so that we can physically complete the task at hand without letting our emotions completely cripple us to a point of danger. People may complain that cops are emotionless, but do you want somebody shaking and crying when they run into your house to save you from a gun-wielding robber? I remembered every detail long enough to log into my police report, but now the adrenaline dump had set in. If you asked me what I wanted to eat, I wouldn't be able to respond. I am incapable of the simplest, most decision-making abilities following removing my 40 pounds of gear. I'll tell you this, Ethan admitted to stabbing Lauren. He said that she was gone and that this wasn't the first time. I was the one to place the handcuffs on him, and I'll never get that image out of my head. I'm sad that I lost my best friend. I'm sad that I lost his fiancée, an incredibly close friend of mine. I hate myself for not having seen the signs. I'm disgusted by caring so deeply about this guy who I considered family could be so horrible. And I'm angry, so angry at Ethan. I lied there trying to quiet the anxiety storm that was torpedoing my mind out of my sleepless state. I wanted to forget everything. I took a few deep breaths. But then I remembered something. The instant the storm in my mind even remotely had paused, I could remember. Ethan whispered something to me as I walked over to grab the knife that he had dropped. Hallowell, you were right. Hallowell, it's familiar, but I can't place it. I closed my eyes. Hallowell, Hallowell. My eyes jolt open. Our 8th grade English teacher. But why? What did that mean? It felt like I was never going to get sleep, but at some point, I eventually just simply shut down. No other way to put it. I woke up today and couldn't shake the last thought that I had. Hallowell's class. I knew my mom incessantly kept all of my schoolwork. Labeled with the label maker, she asked her on Mother's Day how many years ago. I drove over to her house and dug out my 8th grade tote. I flipped through some book reports from summer reading assignments. Nothing that Ethan had ever set his eyes on. I found a few tests. Romeo and Juliet, grammar, creative writing. I failed the Romeo and Juliet test. Definitely nothing I was right about there. And grammar doesn't seem very murdery. But there it was, my creative writing assignment that I presented to the class. The only thing that I ever got an A on. It was inspired by a compilation of late night Harry Truman show rewatching and Twilight Zone binging. I basically wrote an entire essay on how our lives are predetermined and out of our control, but not for a greater being but rather due to the need to keep an equilibrium of parallel planes or universes. It was titled, It's All a Setup. And there it was, three paragraphs from the conclusion. 
Unexplained phenomena such as UFOs, moms magically lifting cars, or even perfectly sane people committing murder are a result of this life as we know it, counteracting a glitch in the parallel. It's when deja vu hits the hardest. I knew that I had to meet with Ethan. My first shift back, I held myself out and headed to the jail. Luckily, one of my old academy mates was working the cells that night. Hey, Sheriff Edwards, long time no see, I said sarcastically. Officer Wharton had been a whole two days already. He smirked. I'm actually here to follow up on a murder case. Ethan redacted. Can you find us a room to chat in? He took a shallow breath and glanced to the side. Man, we're kind of busy tonight. Full moon, you know how that stuff goes. The only room we have doesn't have the fancy recording cameras and audio. Just normal surveillance. Perfect, I said, and I meant it. Ethan shuffled into the room and sat down as the sheriff secured his wrist to the table. He looked frail and he looked absent. Once we were alone, I asked, What did you mean about Hallowell? He slowly lifted his head, gaze meeting my own. You were right. Right about what? I asked. He shook his head, almost in confusion. There has to be a glitch, I don't understand. His voice grew shaky. Take a deep breath, I said. He inhaled. Start from the beginning. I'm listening. He released his breath and said, I was in the kitchen and suddenly I had the most intense deja vu that I've ever had. I was cutting an orange to make an old-fashioned, and the instant that I smelled the orange, it all hit me. Not only did I feel like I already lived this, but I was absolutely sure that someone was about to break into my kitchen and kill me. His hand shook. I knew that he was craving a cigarette. Not that he was a smoker per se, but smoked when he had wanted to. And boy, did he want to. He continues... I grabbed that knife like my life depended on it, and no sooner did I hear that sliding door creak open. Was it Lauren? I asked. No, I mean, yes. I don't know. It was faceless. I just knew that my life was in danger. Dude, I freaking knew it. I took the knife and I stabbed them. It, whatever it was. I tried my best to follow, but he wasn't making much sense. Ethan, are you saying that you thought that Lauren was an intruder? Yes, I guess, but then suddenly I could see her. It was Lauren. As soon as I saw her face, I tried to hold her. But then she ran toward these stairs, and when she turned around, it wasn't her anymore. Ethan bent down so his cuffed hands could rub his eyes. It was a glitch. There is no other way to describe it. Where is Lauren now? I asked. He shook his head and his eyes widened. I don't know, God's honest truth. She was in front of me and then she just vanished. This wasn't the Ethan that I knew. He sounded so unreliable. He had lost all his confidence. How many drinks did you have before this happened? One. And you know one doesn't do crap to me, Nick. He was right. 
I knew that one old-fashioned wouldn't even phase him. All right, well, is there anything else that you had? Anything that we're missing here? His eyes finally locked with mine. I don't know anymore. I've lost total concept of reality. I don't even know if you're you right now. Is he having a mental breakdown? I didn't know what to think about my meeting with Ethan. Sure, some questions were answered, but so many new ones were raised. All I could do now was look at the evidence. The blood samples and fingerprints would take a while to get back to us. The labs are so backed up, and it's been that way for as long as anybody can remember. Next, I decided to look into the crime scene. Even though the Matilda house had always been a fascination of mine, I never had access to police records until working here. I wondered if there had been a string of breaking around the neighborhood or history at the house. What I found next was unsettling. Sure, there was a break-in through the kitchen door before. Heck, it was even at the exact same minute of the day. But here's the thing. It happened seven years ago. The previous owners who had the house had somebody break in and attacked the husband who was standing in the kitchen. The wife was out of town at the time. I was shocked that I hadn't heard of this being such a small town. But it turned out the intruder was an estranged son-in-law, and luckily nobody had died. But only because the owner was able to subdue the attacker, his son-in-law, by restraining him until the police had arrived. There was one news article at the time which even said that he must have had a guardian angel in his side that night, since his son-in-law had a gun in his possession and every intention of using it. But the owner had such a hold on him that he couldn't reach it. I pulled up my old essay yet again to look for anything else that could have made Ethan latch onto, and there it was towards the end. But sometimes our deja vu moments can be echoes, echoes of history, echoes of energy, or even echoes of vibration. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed, so where does it go? It's in a loop, and sometimes those loops crinkle like a garden hose. I was still wrapping my head around my own words, as if written by an entirely different person when my phone advised. Call me. It was Ethan's mom. I immediately called her and all she could say was, She's here. Who? I asked. Lauren. I imagined her body decomposing in their yard or perhaps their basement. I couldn't stop myself from wondering. Did she smell? Where was her body? Why are you calling now? But then I heard the faintest little thing say, Nick? It was Lauren, alive. Jesus Christ, whose blood is in that house? I showed up to Ethan's mom's house to find Lauren sitting on the front porch waiting for me. Lauren, how are you? I asked with genuine concern. I'm fine. I honestly have no idea how this all spiraled so out of control. She shook her head. I took a brief girl's trip and by the time that I came back, Ethan was. She held up her hands as if to say that she had no idea. He was in jail, like how? 
He said that he stabbed you. What happened between you two? I asked. She looked shocked. Stabbed me? He gave me a hug goodbye and said that he was going to have his own boys night and made some corny joke about Jack Daniels being the other guy. He didn't hurt me, not at all. I don't know how to tell you this, but there was blood in your house. I try to spare the detail of just how much. I know. It was there when I got home, so I called Ethan's cell phone, and his mom had picked up and told me everything. I hired cleaners, but I'm staying here for a while. We talked for a short while longer. She told me how she and Ethan had no problems. He had no history of mental illness or blackouts, and she had no idea why he would say that he had stabbed her. Sadly, it would still be weeks before we got the blood results back, but for now we have no victim, dead or alive. Ethan could have slaughtered a pig for all we know, but for now we had enough to get him out of jail. He came over to his mom's house once he was released and after a long embrace with Lauren, I headed to the front porch to talk with Ethan once more. Ethan, what happened, man? He bent over and rested his hair in his palms. I wish I knew. He repeated to me the same story that he had told me earlier. He thought somebody had broken into his house to kill him, and it kept jumping between Lauren's face to someone or something else. We won't know for a few weeks or perhaps months whose blood was in that house. And even then, if the DNA isn't in our system, then it'll remain unknown. There's no crime for holding a knife in your own house though, right? I don't know what the heck went on that night, but Ethan only had one final thing to say to me. Gathering his thoughts, he said, just to take a look at your essay. It stuck with me all these years. So I walked out to my truck, grabbed my essay, and we sat together watching the rain roll in on the chilled January night. It happens to everyone, just in different ways. Some of us will simply experience deja vu as we eat our morning cereal, while others will experience life-changing phenomena. But we all will experience an echo at some point or another. In 1842, Julius Robert Mayer discovered the law of preservation of energy. More simply put, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. E equals mc squared. Albert Einstein discovered that mass and energy are interchangeable. This means that everything, including humans, are energy stored in mass, particle form. Therefore, humans may neither be created nor destroyed. So where does our energy go when our hearts stop pumping red fuel throughout our veins? Well, that's simple, really. We become a higher existence of energy. Much like a potato has the ability to light a bulb, in the right environment we have the ability to light a room as well. Echoes are generally harmless as they are simply residual energy. I say generally because at times there can be a glitch. Think about your grandmother's favorite lamp. It has hand-painted flowers wrapped around a glass base. You have to find classic incandescent bulbs since it won't even work with fluorescent. When you reach for the cord, it's a creamy eggshell color, 
although at one time it was white. As you turn the dial to click it on, you have to stop at precisely the right click, or else it shuts right back off if you flip it too far. Sure, this lamp is well loved and beautiful no doubt, but it only survives in last sight of the most precise conditions. The right bulb, the right flick of a switch. But one day, even as you do everything right, the bulb blows a fuse and poof. It's broken. Sometimes our world has a glitch. Maybe we didn't use the right bulb that day or we neglected to turn the switch just right. That's when you can hear the voice whispering softly into your ear that something is wrong and you need to follow your true path. My mom had a friend who almost went to college, but instead, she became a hairdresser. Everybody gave her such a hard time, but all she could say was that she did what she knew she was meant to do. Sure, people thought that she was a hippie and that she took an easy way out. But when she became a six-figure hairdresser with the perfect husband and kids, meanwhile, their other friend went to college only to wind up divorced and an alcoholic. Who's to say that we can't hear our own pass? There is another type of glitch though, one more sinister. Sometimes we listen just perfectly and we do everything exactly to plan but a fuse is still blown. Maybe there was a leak in the electric box out of our control or a storm came through. These glitches are unpredictable and can manifest echoes. Unexplained phenomena such as UFOs, moms magically lifting cars or even perfectly sane people committing murder are a result of this life as we know it, counteracting a glitch in the parallel. It's when deja vu hits the hardest. But sometimes our deja vu moments can be echoes. Echoes of history, echoes of energy, or even echoes of vibration. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. So, where does it go? It's in a loop. And sometimes, those loops crinkle like a garden hose. I've seen it happen, you know. Well, not yet, but I know I will one day. And I'll use this essay to prove it. Can't get to sleep. Maybe it's nightmares or maybe it's just an uncomfortable mattress. With Ghost Bed, you can finally get the scary good sleep that you deserve. For more than two decades, Ghost Bed has been making mattresses, pillows, and other sleep products designed for maximum comfort and support. Tired of waking up in a cold sweat, every Ghost Bed mattress features signature cooling materials including their patented Ghost Ice technology, so you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Get fast and free shipping with most orders shipping within 24 hours. Plus, you'll get a 101-night sleep trial, with free returns if you're not 100% comfortable on your new mattress. With President's Day coming up, Ghostbed is offering a great deal. Our listeners can get 30% off ghost bed mattresses, plus two free ghost pillows and get two luxury silk pillowcases for free when you spend $1,200 or more. Use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepscast to take advantage of the offer. 
That's www.ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code Mr. Creeps. The Backrooms Hold a Secret That Will Shatter Reality Written by Kyle Harrison Have you ever worked somewhere so long that the days have kind of blended together and you forget when it started and when it ends? That's the feeling I got when I began work at this call center downtown. The place is constantly busy, and that really isn't the problem. But my mind tends to wander and I sometimes can't shake the feeling that what I'm doing here doesn't really matter. I've even voiced these concerns to my boss, who has insisted that big changes coming will reinvigorate the workforce, but I'm not so sure. What we are doing here doesn't seem to matter. A day is just a day, and I've often lost track of weeks at a time. It got so bad that last week I asked if I could be placed on a different shift, and maybe that would switch things up a bit. Graveyard was the only one available, so I figured, why not? Let's see where it takes me. The first few nights were pretty routine. Boring, and they started to make me regret ever signing up for the change. But then something extraordinary had happened. I was wandering the halls up near the fourth floor, trying to find the restroom because the ones on the floor that I work on were being remodeled and I noticed a door that I had never seen before. The way this building is set up, you see, the offices that we work at normally face west, and we can see a little bit of the mountains that dip over the horizon. It's really a pretty scenic view, almost enough to make you think that what you're doing here stuck in a cubicle all day actually means something. Anyway, the point is that this side of the building is mostly large panel windows, that show off the epic desert area and the valleys beyond. We are kind of out here in the middle of nowhere and it's both lonely and solemn, I guess. And there definitely shouldn't have been a door there in the middle of the hallway, leading to seemingly out of the building into thin air. I think I was sure that I was hallucinating, but still, I felt the need to investigate. I walked over to it and reached for the handle but stopped short. A weird sensation in the back of my brain told me that this was a bad idea. I looked around. The hallways were deserted except for me. I somehow convinced myself to push that feeling aside and open the door. I was expecting to see a long drop to the mountains below, but instead I found myself staring at a bland hallway, the same as the one that I was standing in. Another corridor but that didn't seem possible. For some reason, I chose to take a step inside the newfound hallway. Immediately, the fluorescent lights illuminated the long hallway to reveal further corridors, branching off into unknown spaces, and I found myself wanting to explore. As I got midway down the hall, though, that odd sensation of danger was tingling down my spine again, and I turned to leave only to find that the door that I was in didn't exist anymore. I was now completely inside this strange, abstract space. The door that I had just stepped out of was no longer there, just another long corridor that seemed to stretch on infinitely. The walls and the carpet were all the same, 
so bland and meaningless that it was difficult to determine which way I was meant to go. I was beginning to realize that coming here was a mistake and I began to wonder if I was dreaming. Sadly though, no matter what method I used, I couldn't wake up. I decided to try to trace the hallways and determine where they went. Using the small lead pencil from my own pocket, I drew a line down the side of the wall. I figured it might be the only way that I could hope to find a way back to where I had come from. For a long time, I kept tracing the wall to my right, figuring that it would take me somewhere different. I never once encountered the line that I drew in front of me. I could tell that I was making progress, or at least it felt that way. I stopped after about 10 minutes and began to second-guess myself, turning around and following the line back the way that I had come. It took less than 5 minutes to reach the beginning, but I had been wandering and drawing for nearly half an hour. How was that even possible? I started to run down the corridor, turning left and right and hoping that the maze would finally reach a climax. Then, just when I was beginning to lose hope of ever getting out, I saw a door again and I rushed toward it and flung it open. The familiar setting of the office I was accustomed to returned and I ran out. When I looked back, the door was gone and the eerie experience was over, but it lingered with me that night even preventing me from sleeping, haunting my brain and making my body shake. I took so many sleep aids as I could without overdosing and I finally fell unconscious. I told myself it was simply an awful fever dream or something beyond my understanding, and I reassured myself that it would never happen again. But little did I know that it would change everything about me and everyone that had worked there. The following time that I was at work, I was trying to take calls and forget all about the weird experience that I had had on the fourth floor when this strange noise came over my headset. At first, I thought it was a glitch in the software like feedback, but then I heard a voice amid the sound. Michael Long, come to the fourth floor, room 302, immediately. It was a strange message, but it was so precise that I knew it was a mistake. Somebody was summoning me, and because I'm both an idiot and so dang curious, I did as instructed and went up to the room. The entire floor was deserted again and part of me wanted to search for that door, but I kept on task and found the room with no issues. There were two smartly dressed people inside, a man and a woman, and they were standing on the opposite side of a long conference table. I didn't recognize either of them, but then again... This is a big place, so I doubted that I would have. Something about their demeanor told me that they didn't work for the call center. They were like government or military. The woman confirmed this. Michael Long, please take a seat. My name is Emma Carter, and I work for a think tank called Icarus. She sat offering me a drink. I did as I was told and realized why that eerie feeling was still in the air, as I said. You work for that other place that I went to, huh? I immediately recognized the mythical connections. Icarus, that's about an endless maze of some kind, and the legendary Icarus somehow was involved. My Greek literature is foggy from college, but the name is catchy for sure. Icarus's father built the labyrinth for his sole purpose, to keep a monster at bay. But we made ours for another reason. 
We want to analyze the endless possibilities of virtual reality, the man said. Wait, so that door I went in yesterday was like a simulation. Carter gave me a tense smile. More like an evaluation. The mere fact that you were able to see the door and then also move freely through the corridors is a major breakthrough. The man slid a small disc toward me and when I touched it, a massive hologram revealed itself. The place that you stood on is more than just a virtual reality. It was an alternate dimension. We discovered a way to harness its energy and allow for passage between dimensions, but it's been extremely unstable. In fact, often we have been unsuccessful in being able to get anyone to even find the passage at all. We began to suspect that perhaps the issue wasn't with the dimensional gate itself, but the subjects, he told me. The maze was larger than I had expected. In fact, it seemed almost endless. An impossible dream that kept circling like a Mobius strip. How is it designed? I feel like it's far too advanced for anything that we are ensuring from the center, I told them. Emma gave her coworker a glance and he gave a curt nod, giving her permission to speak. There's something special about you and if you select other employees here at the Brighter Futures call center, we suspect that you may have certain biological markers that make it easier for you to pass through the gate. Do you recall when you were first interviewed and asked for multiple lab tests? She asked. I paused and frowned. The memory is so vague that I hadn't even thought to register it. Are you saying that you hired me because you wanted to use me as a guinea pig? I asked as I stood up, ready to walk out. I wasn't comfortable with being their stooge for this human experiment. And then I realized that was probably the case for everybody that worked here. All of us being used for this strange development. I suggest you calm down. If you walk out that door, there's a chance that the markers within you will begin to flux. Due to the fact that you have recently passed through the dimensions, you still have a connection to that place. In a sense, you are like Theseus from the legend, still trapped inside of the labyrinth. The man told me, but I wasn't really listening. I don't care if you offer me thousands of dollars or some lifetime stipend. This felt wrong. Was anything that we did here even impactful or was it all simply for this other experiment? I needed to know. How many people have you been monitoring here? I asked. Currently, only you and five others. Should we successfully be able to determine the roots of the simulation, we should be able to do more by the end of the year. Emma answered. The root? What's that supposed to mean? Are you saying you people didn't create it? Suddenly, it felt like my head was spinning. The man was still standing and extended his hand as though to grab me from falling. We want to make you an offer. To return through the door and to observe and record everything you find there. Once we determine its origins and unlock its potential... Our entire species can leap generations ahead in development and evolution, he said. You don't even know if I would make it back in one piece, I said as I opened the door and shook my head. Find another of your nameless lackeys to do your bidding. I don't want any part of it, I said as I took one step out the door. Don't forget our warning. We're offering you the chance to return home. 
Without our help, the next time you traverse the blank spaces, you might not return. Emma warned. I had no way of being sure if that was a threat, so instead of responding, I made good on my word and I laughed. I closed the door behind me and walked straight ahead. As I suspected when I turned around, the door had disappeared. It made me wonder if the people that I had talked to had even been real. Was I hallucinating? I decided to clock out early and get a physical exam. I needed some kind of basis in reality to establish what was happening to me. But the quick physician showed nothing and I couldn't afford any kind of scan. As far as I knew, I was still normal. So did that even explain what was happening to me? And what if the experience itself was real? What was it within that blank space that called out to me? I googled the Icarus think tank, but I didn't find anything on it. Of course, I should have anticipated that. If they did work for the government, it was doubtful that anything would be found in the project online. I tried to push it out of my mind. But as time passed, I saw that strange blank door at all different times. Even when I was away from the office, it frightened me. And I wanted to destroy it, and yet, I was drawn to it at the same time. I thought that I was crazy at first. Seeing strange doors out of nowhere and also dreaming about endless corridors. Who would think that was normal? And then, almost a week after my first incident, I heard a co-worker named Lucia mention that she was having issues to one of her friends. There was this weird empty floor that I got lost in last night. It took me hours to get back here. She explained, but the friend thought it was only a story. When we were alone, I took a risk and I revealed my own connection to this phenomenon. Lucia actually seemed relieved. Thought I was going crazy. She admitted. Has anybody talked to you about the doors? I asked. What? No, nobody except you seems to know. Suddenly we had a connection that only we seemed to know about, but I was sure that there were more. I told her about how two strange people had tried to recruit me and steered her away. Her eyes got wider and wider, the more frightened with every word. This is some kind of weird conspiracy crap. So they haven't contacted you? I asked. No, but give me their names if you can. My father has a few old friends in the army. He might be able to figure this out. She told me and I scribbled them down and passed it to her. As she left, I felt a little relieved to think that I wasn't alone. Maybe together we could solve this puzzle. And all the while, the strange attention I felt coming to work grew and grew, but this was a coworker. A potential ally in this battle that was reaching out. I received an email a few days later from Lucia, but it warned me not to open it at the call center. The rest of that day, my heart was pounding. Her insistence to not open the email at work told me that we were being monitored at the call center. Did that mean that our supervisors were aware of what the government was doing and they had signed off on it? And we needed proof. Maybe we could sue their butts for this. I opened the email as soon as I got home, surprised to find that it was a video file of Lucia as she was walking toward the mysterious door that kept appearing for both of us. Here it goes, everyone. See you on the other side, she told the audience. 
and then she stepped across the barrier, but the camera went haywire. This bizarre shrieking noise resonated across my brain, and I nearly tossed my headphones across the room in response. I can't put my finger on it, but that noise was unearthly. The video eventually returned to a blank screen, and I heard heavy breathing and Lucia was on the floor. She looked like she had been attacked. And then this creature, this shadowy thing, grabbed at her ankles and dragged her across the screen. I tried to freeze the image to get a look at it, but I could only see fuzzy pixels. It didn't even look like it should exist in our world. It wasn't even a three-dimensional shape, yet it moved like a living and breathing beast. Heavy breathing filled the recording and the camera moved. My heart skipped a beat as I recognized the man from the conference room. He had been a partner with this Icarus project. If you want your coworker to live, come to room 302 tomorrow night. This video will self-destruct. Just like the old school movies, his words came true and the clip was corrupted. I sat there unsure of how to respond. I should have called the police, but I doubt they would even believe me. Instead, I called my boss and requested to be placed on graveyard shift again. I had to find out what happened to Lucia. I clocked in that evening around 8pm and scheduled my break for 10. I would only have a 30 minute lunch break to find the Icarus men in black again, and I prayed that it would be enough. Just like before, I went to the fourth floor and I started to wander. The silence was deafening. There were no mystery doors at this time, but it definitely felt like I was going in the right direction. Just when I felt that I should give up, a voice called to me and I saw the man standing in a doorway. Immediately, I rushed him, pushing him inside and against the wall. Where is she? What did you do to her? Michael, that will be enough. The woman sharply commanded, but I was tired of playing by their rules. Taking out my ballpoint pen, I placed it mere inches from the man's pupil and shouted, I'm not doing jack until I know that woman is okay. I'm fine, Michael. A voice confirmed, and before I knew how to react, the man shoved me away, breaking my arm as he did. I fumbled onto the ground and looked across the table, stunned to see that Lucia was now on the other side in the same uniform as the others. I could hardly move because of the pain and I heard them mumble something to each other. Dexter, you went overboard. We need him, I heard Carter say. Someone came into the room and injected my arm with something even more painful than my break. I laid there for a moment, the room spinning as I felt my body begin to heal. What the heck was that? I said as I realized that I could move my arm again. The particles from within the alternate universe injected into your body to hyper-aggressively stimulate your natural healing. Emma told me and then gave me a lopsided smile. The family's in the medical field. Please quit acting so dumbfounded all the time. You're creating products for medical trials now. Whatever happened to trying to be cautious and testing this out? I asked, glaring at Lucia. And what has happened to you? Did they brainwash you? The simplest way I can explain this is that I'm not the co-worker you remember, she responded. The man who identified himself as Dexter Ward said that the labyrinth was like a web or a hall of yarn, and at the end of each of those unraveling strings was an alternate door that led to a different universe. 
So this pocket dimension really is like a connecting hallway to all other realities. How is something like that even possible? I asked. Again, that is why people like you are vital to understanding this phenomenon. Emma insisted. My focus was on Lucia. Wherever you're from, were there also people there like me that could traverse the blank spaces? I asked. Quite so, Mr. Long. We found several. However, we have been unable to figure out why. Just as testing was done to you, similar tests were run on the ones that we could identify. There is nothing out of the ordinary, or rather the tests we ran weren't sufficient to produce the desired data, she told me. And you think by going back that we could find out more? I asked the group. All of them seemed in agreement with this idea, but I wasn't quite ready to budge and stick my neck out for such a risky operation. I wanted in writing that if for some reason I die or disappear or whatever, this whole thing gets shut down here. These people don't need to be involved. Take your nonsense elsewhere, I told them. You aren't exactly in a position to give a demand, Dexter reminded me. Well, this is a negotiation, right? You need me to get this data collected. So, what can you offer that I would be interested in? I countered. Dexter shifted uncomfortably and Emma smiled, surprised by my tact. She nodded and said, Fine, we don't need the call center anyway. It was just one of several vantage points that could get us back to the blank spaces. Is there anything else you need, Mr. Long? A record of any other interactions with the dimensions that you managed to keep. Like what you found on Lucia. The other Lucia, I mean. I said nodding toward the one in the room. That record was sent to us deliberately. We viewed it as the first message that we had received from the other side. Emma clarified. I paused, standing up and trying to wrap my head around what they were saying. So Dexter wasn't there, I asked. I was, but once again, you're thinking in terms of the universe that you understand and know. The iteration you saw on that screen was sending us a message. Of what, I can't say. Dexter responded. Now this makes my head hurt, I admitted. But I agreed to the terms and said that I would return first thing in the morning. They promised benefits and life insurance, triple my pay. They seemed desperate if I'm being honest and it made me feel like I had control of the situation. But that couldn't have been further from the truth. The next morning at my desk, there was a note explaining that I needed to visit the company nurse and request a specific appointment time with a Dr. West. Supposedly, he would be the one to give me another serum which would increase the likelihood of finding the blank spaces. This will also record your thoughts onto a cloud service. Everything you've experienced relating to the other dimension will be filtered here for documentation. West told me. The injection reminded me of what Icarus had already done, and it told me that once again these people were keeping some of their secrets close to their chest. It felt exhilarating the road to finally cross the threshold again. I had been thinking about the blank space for so long and now to be face to face with potential answers. I actually opened the door without fear and stepped across into the virtual space. Wes told me that my very thoughts were being recorded and I guess that freaked me out a little bit, but I've tried my best to adapt and focus on the scenario in front of me. The corridors are spacious and plain but also narrow and cramped. 
For such an empty space, they give a vibe of claustrophobia that I've never felt before. It's been almost a day, although to be honest, I cannot tell time like I used to. There isn't day or night here, and I don't get tired or hungry. In fact, I don't think I have even needed to use the bathroom. I've been thinking about that and wondering if my body has actually undergone some metaphysical change within this dimension. The creature that I saw attack Lucia was, for example, only two dimensions. Could it be that within this space, everything exists outside of the reality that we understand? It's a complete glitch in our perception of the universe, a road that is leading nowhere. On the second day, I found what looked like a different type of room. This one was black and square and for some reason, I got the feeling that it was near the center of the maze. There was a code on the door that led into an inner chamber. On a whim, I typed in the word Icarus and it opened. The room was dark and the oxygen felt light and it was cold and ethereal. I followed the sound of faint footsteps. Were they my own? I wasn't even sure why this room had suddenly existed. Was the space itself taunting me and leading me into a deeper place? I soon found the answer as I rounded another corner. There were tubes of people all in stasis of some kind hanging on the wall of the corridor. Each of them had a number carved under their pod, a Roman numeral. I saw that one of them looked like Dexter, another reminded me of a younger version of Lucia. I froze and tried my best to not scream as I saw one marked with a Roman numeral for three. It looked like me except the face was unfinished. The features were still being completed by some unknown software that was constantly updating this fresh body. Was that really me? Did that new me have a soul? Was this all the product of some mad god? The end of the hallway led into a control room of some sort. Data was being compiled and calculated. Some of it didn't even seem possible. And on the screens, I saw hundreds if not thousands of creatures that resembled the strange limber monster that had attacked Lucia on camera, each of them roaming a different version of the maze. What are you doing here? A voice cracked the silence and I turned to see an older woman there, hair as white as snow, her eyes paler than the blue sky. She was holding a key in her left hand like her life depended on it. Icarus sent me, I told her truthfully. Icarus? So the first experiment was a success then, and now they've come to bargain. She said as she walked past me and placed the key into a small slot next to the monitors. All of them began to rewind the videos and the shrieking of the monster echoed loudly as I covered my ears. I was told to document the origins of this place. Are you its creator? I asked. The woman laughed. My name is Lavina Pickman. I wish I could take credit for this masterpiece, but I'm afraid not. Just another cog in the machine. But if you're telling the truth, then it's already too late. Too late to stop any of this. The woman rambled. Icarus is searching for answers, and so am I. What made people like me and Lucia special? I asked. She turned to me, a gun now in her hand as she fired one bullet straight into my stomach. I hunched over in confusion as the older woman fired another into my kneecap. I should think that would be obvious. She paused as she stepped over me and put the gun to my head. 
You were born here. When I woke up, I was in a hospital bed. A man bearing a striking resemblance to Emma Carter stood over me and took off his glasses. You're away, congratulations. The surgery was intense, but we managed to pull you through, he said. I'm sorry, where am I? I asked, looking out the window. The landscape reminded me of rural Canada. Washington State, you were dead for two hours, Mr. Long, but now you're alive again. I checked my arm and saw a tattoo of a Roman numeral there, a shudder going up and down my spine. I didn't fully understand everything, but I knew that the memories of the maze and Icarus had to be true. You know, it seemed as though I was in an entirely different body, a different long from, a different universe. I got released from the hospital the next day, and it has been almost a month since then. I haven't heard from Icarus, and there's no record of the life that I knew. This Michael was an architect in a small Washington town. I've told myself that I can try to live this life and make it my own, but my soul hurts. I know something beyond the veil of reality is still calling to me. I know one day in this new life a door will appear and I'll have to step across back into that place. I pray this time I'm ready for what's on the other side. I'm staying at a remote cabin in the woods. There's a creature that won't let me leave. Written by 02321 The past year has been complicated. I've done my best to get through it, but I started to feel the weight start to come down as the days got closer to the holidays. My mother passed away on Christmas last year. My father wasn't able to handle it. He left without a word, leaving his 16-year-old son enough money to live on. We expected him to be back once he had calmed down, but I've only seen him twice this year. My grandparents took over looking after me. They believed that my father would come around at some point. I agreed with them only to not shatter their hopes. I no longer saw that man as my father. No matter what he did, we would never be a family again and I felt guilty for that. My uncle volunteered to look after me over Christmas. He had rented a nice cabin that he wanted us to spend time together. My family figured being away from the city surrounded by a beautiful winter landscape might help my mental state over the holiday. They also thought that being around my cousin, who was around the same age as me, might give me a little bit of company. I again didn't bother to correct them that I didn't really care for my cousin. People called him the miracle baby. After years of trying, my aunt got pregnant with him, but it came at the cost of her life. He had been born on Christmas Eve, and she had died on Christmas Day. I saw the holidays also affected my uncle, but my cousin didn't seem to carry any weight of his mother's death. I really only agreed to go on the trip to try to support my uncle, now that I kind of understood where he was coming from. I arrived later in the day. My uncle met me outside and helped me with my bags. The cabin felt cozy with the fire going in the living room. It had central heat so the fire was mostly only for show. He quickly took my bags up to the spare bedroom so I could go and see my cousin. 
He expected us to get along great that week. I found him sitting on the couch, switch in hand with the volume nearly maxed out. I said hello, but I didn't get a response back. Soon my uncle came out with eggnog and cookies, doing his best to appear festive. Deep down, I saw how much effort he put into appearing happy for us. Why don't you two hook up the game to the TV and play together? The game can do that right. My uncle had offered. Oh, it's a single player game. My cousin said, not breaking focus. His face fell, trying to think of a grateful way to carry the conversation. I quickly stood up to walk towards where my bags were placed. I have a handheld game too. We can chill on the couch together. I said, and that seemed to resolve the issue. I still played 3DS games. I saw no reason to upgrade when I could get games for pretty much nothing. I barely had time to play with at school nowadays either way. When I came back to the living room, my uncle was in the kitchen getting dinner ready, and my cousin was kind enough to leave me two cookies and a half a glass of eggnog. His behavior should have bothered me, but I found myself not caring in the slightest about him. My chest felt too full missing my mother to really care about his attitude. After dinner, I helped clean the dishes and then I went to my room. I felt exhausted from being around people this time of year. I got into bed and tried to fall asleep. But instead, I ended up staring out the window at the snow and gently falling for most of the night. My mind not as peaceful as the weather outside. I got up early to help my uncle with breakfast the next day. He looked about as tired as I did. My cousin didn't come down for food and he slept in until about noon, and I was fine with that. The cabin was pretty quiet when he slept. We made grilled cheese sandwiches and soup for lunch when a certain somebody rolled out of bed. I didn't say anything to him. Who doesn't want to sleep in on Christmas break? It's so cold in here. I heard from the other room while I stayed in the kitchen, finishing putting away dry dishes. The chores helped me take my mind off of things, so I insisted on doing them. Kev, the heater's already on. Why don't you go sit by the fire? My uncle replied. Well, because the fire isn't started yet, Jason. I flinched at the words. Kevin refused to call my uncle a dad, but instead used his first name. He sounded overly annoyed over nothing. Maybe he didn't want to share a holiday with someone that he barely knew. My uncle didn't get upset. He just joked that his son was grumpy from oversleeping and offered to show him again how to start the fire. I made my way over to watch from the open doorway. Jason on his knees, nursing a flame, and Kevin sitting on the couch, the video game music already pouring out. I turned away, starting to feel hot and not wanting to listen to the same few battle songs play over and over again. Jason found me a few hours later in the spare bathroom cleaning the floor. It was pretty clean beforehand, but I still found spots in the corners and hidden patches of dust behind the toilet. What are you doing down there? He asked confused on my sudden cleaning spree. Mowing the lawn. I answered back on reflex. My father had a habit of saying that phrase every time somebody had asked him a question with an obvious answer. 
I may not want anything to do with them, but some of his quirks stayed with me. My uncle smiled and got down on the floor next to me. You don't have to do this. How about you and Kev go hang out for a bit? Are there any new shows that you want to talk about? I shook my head not looking up for my work. I'm fine doing this, it relaxes me. I want to give him some space too. I bet he's not happy that someone is invading his time off. Jason wanted to disagree. Christmas should be a time to spend with all of your family if it was possible. He didn't want me to feel unwanted. I'll talk to him, he said and stood back up. That would only make Kevin hate me more. I opened my mouth about to talk him out of it when the lights had flickered off. Jason was a calm person and I've never seen him upset. He had just tried the light switch a few times and shrugged thinking it worse that he needed a brave outside to start the generator. A knocking came from the door soon after after we had left the upstairs bathroom. It echoed through the cabin and for some reason, it made my blood run cold. All the power of the cabin went out. For a second I thought the neighbors had the same issue. But it was far too soon for another person from a different cabin to be able to make it over here. Jason, the door. Kevin shouted from his spot on the couch between the knocks. I still heard his game music. The sounds being overpowered by that knocking. My uncle started to walk down the stairs. I found myself reaching out wanting to stop him for an unknown reason. Who knocks this many times? Honestly, I heard you the first time. Jason muttered as I followed behind him. He told me to stay in the hallway so that he could talk to whoever was at the door. He thought that maybe some other wind was blowing something against it and someone wasn't rude enough to knock so loudly and for so long. I didn't see much from where I stood. I heard the knocking stop as the door opened and I felt the winter chill sweep through the cabin by the wind. And then I heard my uncle scream. Kids, run. Those two short words froze me to the spot instead of my body doing what was requested. He came running from the door, his arms wrapping protectively around me. He wasn't much taller than myself and couldn't really lift me off the ground to drag me away from the threat. But I was still a kid in his eyes and not nearly an adult. A black shape came pouring through the door. The smell of pine flooding the cabin. Kevin came rushing over to see what the fuss was all about. We were unable to do anything as the creature found its way inside the cabin. Branching fingers of black roots covered the front hallway, reaching up to the ceiling. They connected to what looked to be clothing of what walked inside. The face covered with a dome of more black roots, puffs of breath came out between the twigs as it walked. I didn't know how this thing fit through the door. It was almost as tall as the ceiling. The creature took two steps inside on legs much like a goat. Frost covered the wooden floorboards creeping out from the hooved feet. The air dropped so low that I was shivering from dread and the sudden coldness. For some reason, my body started acting on its own and pushed Jason behind me. Kevin stood in the living room doorway, mouth open and face pale. The monster stood, unseen eyes staring us down, and the sounds of the roots creaked through the cabin. What the? Are you like Krampus or something? 
Kevin whispered mostly to himself. A laugh came from between the black roots sounded like cracking ice. A set of glowing eyes flickered to life in the darkness of that creature's face. It raised a set of gnarled hands, tipped with claws almost in a greeting. I am no such thing. I simply travel with the snow. I have come a very long way looking for a meal. Once I have eaten, I am able to move on, bringing the weather with me. The voice was low, almost a whisper that didn't match the creature's size. Jason stood up, trying to act brave in front of the two teens. I have a lot of food, you can. I require one of your bodies for my meal. You may pick whoever you would like to hand over. The monster replied in an ice-cold tone. My uncle nearly faded on the spot. His eyes darted around trying to think his way out of this situation. He refused to offer either of us up, and the only other option was himself. I didn't blame him for hesitating. Any sane person wouldn't jump right into being eaten by a monster. While I watched his internal debate, Kevin slipped away into the living room. He snagged some newspaper and a lighter. I was helpless to stop him as he charged at the monster, flaming newsprint in hand. He grabbed a pretty big bundle so he was able to reach the creature with the flames. Get screwed! He arched his arm to toss the fire at the creature when a long hand reached down to grab the flames. It enclosed over the entire bundle, putting out the fire right away. The hand then went to Kevin's shoulder to forcefully turn him around and then push him into me. Honestly, if I wasn't so scared, the exchange might have been a little bit funny. I am not so cruel as to rip apart your loved one right away. I am able to wait for a long time. Make your peace and then send out your choice when you are ready. I needed to hold back Kevin from doing something stupid again. The creature turned in as quickly as it appeared and it laughed. The cabin door opened, blowing slightly in a cold wind. My uncle raced over to the door to slam it shut. He locked it and then pulled the heavy shoe rack in front of the door as if that might do something. Don't be stupid. Let's get to the car and get out of here. Kevin shouted. He pulled out of my arms and knocked my ribs hard enough to make a bruise. I sucked in my anger towards him to not make the situation more heated. Language. And it's not there. That thing must have moved it. Jason said and he almost raised his voice. Kevin refused to believe it. He shoved a pass to look out the front window. Not seeing what he wanted to, he ran to the living room to get a better look outside. I meekly followed, my heart racing to see what I already knew. In the past few seconds, the wind outside had picked up and started to howl, kicking snow around, making the outside world completely white. No car could be seen beyond the front porch. If we strayed outside, the wind and cold may kill us in a short while if that monster didn't get to us first. The entire cabin shook with the wind as a terrible winter blizzard came down. We were without power with only a fireplace for warmth. I assumed that we had about a week's worth of food and maybe a little bit less. The only way out simply was for us to make a terrible choice. If we all didn't want to starve to death in this cabin, 
One of us needed to die. My body shook, matching the windows rattling from the wind. We're all gonna sleep in the living room. Can you guys help me bring the blankets and everything downstairs? Michael said, his voice strained. And Kevin stabbed. He stormed over to his father saying how stupid that was. The living room windows were too big and exposed. He said that the monster could smash them at any time to scoop us up. He said that we should lock ourselves inside a bathroom with no windows until help arrives. Jason was patient, letting Kevin burn himself out. In a calm voice, my uncle said that we needed to stay by our only source of heat. I silently agreed with him. We both got to work, bringing all the blankets, sheets and pillows and even towels into one spot to stay warm. I started to bring all the canned goods to the living room to make less trips to the kitchen in the future. At least the water still worked, but we didn't know for how long. Jason started to fill up every empty container with water just in case. Luckily, a small bathroom was next to the living room. Kevin stayed on the couch and played a switch until the battery gave out. He swore, tossing it across the room. I flinched at the sound of the Joy-Con coming off on the landing. He then locked himself in the bathroom for over an hour. We left him alone to vent out his anger. Soon, we had the living room set up with a fire going. I stared at the pile of wood, worried that we may run out of things to burn before our food ran short. I brought some books, so I decided to try and read them before we needed to sacrifice the pages to the flames. The wind outside had never let up. If what that monster said was true, the snow wouldn't stop until we let it eat one of us. A long silence came between us, the crackling of the fire and the wind the only sounds. Thank you again for being understanding when it comes to Kevin. He's always had a slight anger problem. All this stress is getting to him. Jason admitted and didn't look away from the flames. I read between the lines. He wanted to thank me for not insisting that we toss Kevin out because of how he's been acting. I didn't really like the guy, but I didn't want him to die. He did try and save us with the whole flaming newspaper thing. I wondered if he had thought it through a little bit more if he could have done some damage. The monster didn't give us a time limit. Maybe we can think of a way out of this, but tonight we should just calm down a little bit. I said and my uncle agreed. We wouldn't be able to think of any kind of plan being as stressed out as we were. But I mean, what could we really do? The landline was down, our cell phones didn't have service. No power. Only a fire for heat and no weapons besides some kitchen knives. My uncle had rented this cabin for camping, not hunting. There was nobody expected at the cabin for two weeks, after we were meant to leave. Could we stretch out our food for three weeks between three people? Maybe. At least our water was fine. The taps and shower ran lukewarm. Good enough to get clean with, but not good enough to warm up. If we took one step outside, that creature would eat us. I ran through our dire situation in my head a hundred times finding no answer. Kevin came back from the bathroom. He kicked me off the couch to curl up under the blankets. He refused to look at us. I didn't even try to talk with him. 
Our dinner was a single can of soup. I refused to eat because I wasn't feeling very well. Kevin, of course, complained asking for more food. Jason never raised his voice but kept saying that. We needed a ration what we had left. Finally, my cousin gave up to return to the couch to sulk. I brought the bowls and pots to the kitchen to wash. Jason followed behind to gather up all the wooden cutting boards, the stirred spoons, and even the knife block. He knew that our firewood was going to run out within a few days, and the rest was outside along the side of the cabin. He regretted not bringing in more beforehand. I glanced at the wooden kitchen table wondering when we would need to start breaking it into pieces. But the snow outside and the night wasn't very dark. I could see easy enough into the gloom. The wind kept blowing causing me to feel colder than I actually was. Jason wasn't able to sleep but Kevin had passed out on the couch. Snoring away at the ones awake stared at the fire. The wooden knife block burned for at least two hours and then broke apart into embers. Do you still miss her? I asked suddenly unaware of what made me say such a thing. My uncle looked over a bit startled by the question, and soon his face had turned into a sad smile. He stared back at the flames and knowing this conversation would come up this week, but wasn't really sure of what to say. I'll always miss her. Weirdly enough, you look more like her than Kevin does. But seeing both of you reminds me that she's not really gone. I don't think that she'll ever be fully gone, you know. When we first got married, she hated the spare bedroom's paint color. I came home to see her repainting the room in ugly blue. I asked her what she was doing and she answered, mowing the lawn. A smile tugged at the corners of my mouth. My aunt had died before I was born and yet parts of her were passed down through genetics and from my father, who had copied some of her traits. A great deal of my personality was shaped by my mother, because I tended to spend more time with her while growing up. I had wondered if I might ever stop missing her, as if this feeling might just go away someday. I knew that it wouldn't because the parts of her were woven into who I was. And Kevin snored so loudly that it woke him up for a second. He rolled over and fell right back asleep. Jason and I almost laughed loud enough to wake him up again. I found a bundle of blankets ready to try and sleep for a few hours. I woke up first, finding the fire low. I got it going again and then I heard Kevin waking up. He complained about the cold and I ignored him. I wondered how much of his mother was passed down to make his father be so patient with him all the time. We got started on making breakfast, planning on making eggs with a slice of bread when an issue came up. The bread was missing. I was positive that there had been a full loaf sitting on the counter the night before. I spent almost an hour of looking and that delayed cooking. Finally, Kevin snapped, unable to take the cold and his hunger. Stop making a show. You must have eaten it in the middle of the night. You didn't have dinner, so you must have been hungry. If you're not going to be honest, I say that we toss you out. Kev, no one is getting tossed out, Jason said, trying to get between us. Did you eat it last night? I asked Kevin. My voice so cold that it shocked me. 
What? No. I heard some rustling, so it must have been you. My dad wouldn't. If you heard me eating, why didn't you stop me? Or are you just lying to make me look bad in order to have a reason to kick me out? I said calmly. I wasn't as calm as my voice had sounded. I was scared to death. This was two against one. I bit down on the inside of my mouth to keep my fear and anger down. No. Kev, stop it. You know better. I understand that I'm an outsider here. Your dad loves you and I'm just the nephew. And I'm someone who doesn't have anyone expecting me to return back home. I can see the reasoning for wanting me to be that monster's meal. But I would have hoped that we could have been open about this and not so quickly resort to lies and backstabbing. We all remained silent in the cold kitchen. The temperature so low that I thought that I saw my breath. I wore two sweaters and three layers of socks and I still shook. I had never seen such a hot, angry hatred on somebody's face before. Kevin gritted his teeth, his fists at his side, ready to strike. His face turned red and before his father could grab him, he came charging. Are you calling me a liar? His body knocked me to the ground and I was smart enough to cover my face with my arms pressed together. He punched on as hard as he could, but he hit my forearms instead of my face. The attack only lasted for a few seconds and Jason pulled Kevin off and got a few knocks to the cheek for his effort. The teenager pulled away still red with anger. He charged back to the living room leaving me breathing hard on the kitchen floor. Jason got down, shaking with his cheek turning red from the punch. In a few hours, a bruise would appear in that spot. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. He's never not like this. He sounded so distraught that it hurt my chest. I sat up shaken but alright considering. It's not your fault what's going on, well, it sucks. But I'm gonna grab some blankets and stay in a room upstairs. I said brushing myself off. You'll freeze, Jason protested. I've been without heat before. I'll be fine under a few layers. If I get too cold, I'll come back down. At least a day or so away from Kevin to let him cool down would be ideal. As much as my uncle wanted to disagree, the pain in his cheek proved that keeping us separated would be the best idea, at least for a little while. I waited by the stairs for him to gather some blankets for me and some pillows. Kevin didn't say anything and just watched from the couch. I noticed that he tossed some more wood in the fire, a bit too much. We would need to start to break down the dressers all too soon if Jason didn't keep an eye on him. I took two books with me. I got settled into bed and my hands were getting a little cold as I read. In a short while, my uncle came upstairs with uh, some scrambled eggs. My stomach growled from not eating the night before. I thanked him, but we didn't speak any further. That day, I spent in bed, listening to the blizzard outside and tried to forget what kind of situation we were in. Jason was able to cook some pasta over the fire. It didn't taste great, but it was warm. I took my dirty dishes downstairs and retired back to bed. I wondered how long we may be stuck for and if I needed to avoid Kevin for the rest of the stay. I drifted off to sleep, feet a bit cold but otherwise warm enough, 
And for the first time in a while, I had a dream about my mother. If by some chance I had died in this cabin, I started to wonder if there was an afterlife and if I could see her again. I wanted to tell her a thousand things that my grief clouded when she was still here. I was still half asleep thinking about it when I felt the weight on my chest. My brain registered the cold blade of the knife against my throat, and for a few seconds the fear of death was replaced by the calm of wanting to see my mother again. I snapped out of my acceptance of death and knowing that she wouldn't want me to die so young. I didn't dare move. My thoughts raced through my head trying to figure out a way out of this. Kevin sat on my chest, a wild look in his eyes, the knife shaking in his hand from excitement instead of regret over what he was doing. That thing never said you two needed to be alive to be eaten. Kevin said, his voice trembling from joy. I was not having this. I refused to let this idiot take my life. I feared for my uncle in that moment. Was he safe and asleep downstairs or did my cousin silently deal with him before heading to take care of me? I will admit, I expected something like this of him. Nothing so extreme as murder, but I thought that we may get into another fight in this room. I slipped my arm under my pillow, the blankets shielding my movements. Before the knife came down, I pushed up, knocking Kevin off balance. He cried out, stumbling back, and I swung down my weapon directly to his temple. A sickening crack came as the hammer slammed against his skull. I grabbed the knife and wasted no time checking on if the strike had knocked him out or not. My socks slipped against the hardwood flooring. I nearly fell down the flight of steps to the living room trying to find Jason. He was face down in a pile of blankets. In the light of the low embers, I saw a spot of blood on the back of his head. I didn't really have a plan. I just went over to him checking for a pulse. That woke him up, making him slowly sit up with my help. Kevin had knocked him in the head with some firewood, and then he went to take care of me. I helped Jason to his feet, his head still groggy. I let him use my shoulder for support, then it all hit me. Now what? Would I really need to force Kevin outside? Or would we just lock him in a room until help had arrived? A primal scream of rage that came from the top of the stairs made it clear that the second choice was no longer an option. I refused to leave my uncle behind. I forced him behind me and raised my hammer ready for a fight. I've never been so scared in my life. Seeing Kevin charging down the stairs with a closet rod in his hand terrified me more than the monster that started all of this. He gave me no time to plan. He just jumped right into fighting, the metal rod coming down painfully on the arm that tried to block it. I got tossed back to the ground again, my hammer knocked out of my hand. At least being in such a rage, Kevin didn't even think to pick it up. Finally, Jason came around. He pulled Kevin off after a minute of the attack, but it felt much longer. He tossed his son halfway across the room, the effort making him dizzy, making him collapse to the floor. I found the hammer ready to defend us both. I'll kill you. I'll kill both of you. I only got to my knees when Kevin's screams of rage scared me too much. I stopped moving for a second. He had turned completely feral. I wouldn't be able to win in a fight with someone like him. He came again, face red and eyes wild, 
the metal rod slightly bent but a deadly weapon in his hands. Everything happened so fast I wasn't sure what had transpired. I tried getting out of the way but the rod hit my head so hard that I saw stars. I fell to the ground thinking that I was going to die. When my sight came back I saw Jason and Kevin still almost embracing each other, both breathing hard and Jason's face filled with horror. Kevin's eyes went to his stomach and then to his father's face. The rod dropping from his hand and he stumbled back a step. Red started to bloom outwards from a small spot on his stomach. With an expression of disbelief, Kevin placed a hand on his stomach, staining it. A bloody knife dropped from Jason's hands, the same one that Kevin wanted to kill me with. Dad? He asked in a tone that made him sound like a child. I raised my head, wanting to get back up only for the darkness to take over again. I don't know how long I was out. I woke up, feeling oddly warm and finding the cabin bright. The light hurt my eyes. Blinking, pounding pain came to my head, and I refused to give in. I sat up, trying to make sense of what had happened. The lights were on, that meant we had power and heat again. That fact made my stomach drop to the floor my body turning colder than it had been in the past few days. On shaking legs, I got up to follow the trail of blood leading to the front door. It looked as if somebody was dragged along the hallway. The shoe rack pushed aside and front door open, letting in the cold. My uncle stood, face white as the fallen snow outside. Tears came to my eyes, but I refused to let them take over. I stopped next to my uncle, his eyes wide and staring out into nothing. Is Kevin? I asked in a weak voice, unable to say the full question. I didn't want this. I didn't want to die, but I didn't want this. Because my uncle loved his son and I loved my uncle. He shouldn't need to suffer through another missing person in his life. To my shock, he reached over to pull me into a hug. His body stiff and cold from standing in the doorway for so long. There is never a Kevin. There has only been you. My uncle answered back. His expression and voice chilled me to the bone. It was as if the fear of what he had said had turned into a physical thing that wanted to force itself through my throat as a scream. I swallowed it down, making my chest hurt. My stomach twisted, unable to accept what I had pushed down. With all my willpower, I nodded and held him back. If this was what was needed for my uncle to deal with what he did, I was going to go along with it. I let him sit in his bedroom for a full day in shock. We could have left at any point, but I needed to clean up the mess that we had left behind. For some reason, Jason wanted to stay at the cabin for Christmas. I scrubbed away the stains and put the cabin back in order. When he came out of his room in the morning, he acted as if nothing had happened. He cheerfully made pancakes while humming Christmas songs. When Christmas did come along, any of Kevin's gifts were given to me. The tags weren't even changed. I acted along knowing that this was for the best. I'll be going home with my uncle tomorrow. This cabin is going to sit empty for a while without anybody knowing of what happened. It didn't feel right for Kevin's death to be swept under the rug. I needed to tell someone, anyone, of what we needed to do. That monster may come back here to target the next renters. 
or it may go to wherever it is able to snow for the next meal. I only hope the next set of people don't suffer the way that my uncle did. I called my grandparents saying that Jason wanted me to stay for a while. They were fine with that due to their age. They found it hard looking after a teen and wanted to retire somewhere warm. I don't know what to do when people come asking about my cousin's location, or if anyone is going to notice him missing. Until they do, I'm going to keep my uncle's delusion alive. I think after everything, it would be unfair to drag him back to reality. I hope that we can carry on like this for when the next Christmas comes along. Maybe even more after that if we're lucky. I hope that you all enjoyed this week's episode. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.